Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podserve, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. Felix Haynes was an administrator and president of several community colleges before he retired and started writing historical fiction novels. Then he decided to expand on a story his father told him about a ship he was on in World War II named after Kenneth Whiting. So he embarked on a labor of love to bring the remarkable achievements of this man to life in his book, Kenneth Whiting, Remembering a Forgotten Hero of Naval Aviation and Submarines. So no stranger to writing, are you? Oh yeah, I started. I started writing uh, 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 books about 2004, 2005, and I wrote three historical fiction novels. One set in Vietnam, one in Panama, and one in Scotland. Three places that I have been and, and loved, and uh, n- none of them sold very well. Uh, about 2016 or 17, my wife suggested to me. She said, "You know." She said, I think your style is better suited to, to writing nonfiction. And uh, I said, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. And uh, I'd written a lot, of, a lot of nonfiction in colleges over, over the years. Um, and uh, so that's, that's how I, that, that was the beginning of the Kenneth Whiting saga. My father, during World War II, served on two ships in the Pacific. And the second ship he served on was named the USS Kenneth Whiting. It was a seaplane tender. Kenneth Whiting was well-known in the Navy of his day, uh, 1905 to 1943, uh, both in submarines and in aircraft carriers. He had done some, some really, really, really good things, good accomplishments. But he passed away in the middle of World War II, sadly. Uh, he got meningitis and passed away in 1943. And the Navy quickly began to honor him. Uh, they named Whiting Field uh, Naval Air Station near Pensacola, where the, where the Navy still trains all of their pilots for him. And they also named uh, this seaplane tender for him. And so my dad served on that seaplane tender in the last year, a year and a half of World War II. He was communications officer on it. And he came home, and he, we would sit around the dinner table, and he would tell us stories about the Kenneth Whiting, the Kenneth Whiting, the Kenneth Whiting. And I, 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 I got curious, and I, this, he, he passed in 05, and here was 10 years later, and, and I got curious about who Kenneth Whiting was. So I started reading uh, a lot of naval history, and I found out about all the things he had done and all his contributions and the fact that there, no biography had ever been written on him. Hmm. Uh, his his daughter, his oldest daughter, was working on one in the 70s and 80s and got sick and passed away. Uh, so she had a lot of files, uh, but no uh, no book. So as I began to read about all these accomplishments, I said, "I'm going to write the book. I'm going to write I'm going to write a biography of Kenneth Whiting, the book that he's always deserved." And uh, I thought I could do it in three years, but it took six. Wow. COVID. COVID. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I went to the National Archives. I went to Whiting Field. I went to a bunch of places to uh, uh, do research. Uh, and they were all very helpful. But the problem was uh, they, were, they would be closed for months, you know. Right. And I couldn't get, 
I couldn't get in. So that stretched the book. to It was almost six years that it took me to write it. So tell me about some of this man's remarkable achievements. Uh, as a young submarine officer, think really rickety submarines, really small, you know, not nothing like the nuclear submarines we have today. And uh, at that time, submarines were, were really a risky career field to have. Nobody had ever escaped from a sunken submarine. Today, the Navy has methods, you know, that, that they, they that men can escape from sunken submarines, but nobody right. ever had. It's kind of scary. Yeah. So he, he was he was captain of this small submarine, a crew of six or seven, as a as a young man, a young officer, and he put his submarine on the bottom of Manila Bay, and uh, told his crew to put him in the torpedo tube. And uh, opened the end of the torpedo poop tube, and uh, he swam out and swam up to the surface. He was a really good swimmer. He was a champion swimmer at the Naval Academy. And uh, so he swam up to the surface of Manila Bay and was picked up and uh, became known throughout the Navy as the first man to escape from a sunken submarine. Wow. Uh, brought hope to a lot of sailors. Uh, and then he got interested in aviation, and he applied to be a pilot in the about 1912 or 14. And when the Navy finally transferred him, finally transferred him, they, they, there were several other people who they transferred first, trained as pilots, but there weren't many, very many. And uh, he was assigned to go to uh, an aviation school owned and operated by Orville Wright. Hmm. We all know who Orville Wright was. The key became a, they became lifelong friends. And... Uh, he learned to fly from Orville Wright. He was the last naval officer to be trained under contract to Orville Wright. Uh, shortly after that, the Navy opened Pensacola up, and they consolidated all their pilot training there, so they didn't have to send them send anybody to private schools. So that's how he got into aviation. And very shortly, he, you know, he would look around, and he would he would be he was really creative, and he would see things that he thought could be done, and. He submitted three proposals, this is just before World War I, to create a new kind of ship with a flat deck that we, we, we were flying flying airplanes, seaplanes. Think of seaplanes. You know, they're flying off the water. Yeah. But we had not landed any air, airplanes on, on, on any ship before. And so he submitted three proposals to put a flat deck on, a long flat deck on ships and have, have airplanes fly off and land on that flat deck. And the Navy turned him down. World War One happened. He came back from World War One, uh, where he did some some amazing things too. And uh, he, when he came back, he submitted another proposal. And by then, the Navy was more willing to accept the idea. And so they uh, converted a a, a, a a coal ship, 550 foot coal ship, into an aircraft carrier, the first aircraft carrier. And they assigned him to be the, the number two officer, and he commissioned the, that ship because the captain didn't understand the ship and didn't think it was very important, so he just stayed away for three or four months. And Kenneth White commissioned the ship, became the first captain of an aircraft carrier, uh, and immediately went his first tour, his tour there, three years, and the other pilots developed the book on how to operate an aircraft carrier. You know, think about the movie right. Top Gun with all that stuff going on on the deck. Well, the Navy had to develop all, all the procedures for that. Uh, a little scary on that deck when you've got airplanes taking off and right. landing at the same time. So he, he wrote the book for that.
And because of that, uh, a lot of the references in the literature that I saw, he was mentioned in a lot of other biographies and other naval history books as the father of the aircraft carrier. So that, in addition to submarines, that was his, his accomplishment in, uh, in aircraft carriers. And he became the Navy's expert on aircraft carriers. And he supervised the construction of our next five. So he, his fingerprints were all over our first six aircraft carriers, some of which were sunk in World War II. Why do you think he was, he was overlooked? Uh, well, that's a great question, and one that I plan on working on some more. In 1930, he was, he was placed in command of the Naval Air Station at Norfolk. He commanded four Naval Air Stations during his career. And he got there, and they were doing an air show for, uh, on Navy Day, uh, which is in October. And uh, a, a lot of the pilots, uh, there was about, nah, I'm going to say, eight or ten pilots in that air show. He had, they were all his protégés. Uh, they had worked for him on the Langley. They were on the, on the first aircraft carrier. They, you know, they, he knew them well. And uh, so they flew their, their uh, air show. And his boss, who was a rear admiral, uh, but not an aviator, looked at the air show and he said, you're breaking the rules. He said, you're flying too low. And he went to the Department of the Navy and had Kenneth Whiting discipline, a okay, uh, secretary of the Navy, Article 15. And uh, at those years, the, the politics of the Navy were such that the battleship guys ruled the Navy. Right. And they didn't understand aviation. They didn't understand aircraft carriers. They felt that the, the, the aviators were getting too big for their britches. So that's the politics in the background of this. And so Kenneth Whiting was punished. Uh, and they put that letter in his file, and it kept him from making rear admiral. Oh, my gosh. He, he, he retired as a captain. Yeah, there, see, there, but there have, been a, there have been a bunch of other examples in, in, in history at that time of the same thing happening to, to naval aviators. Uh, okay. But a lot of that has been reversed. Kenneth Whiting's has never been reversed, and I would love to see Congress go back and, and, and promote him posthumously to rear admiral in honor of the, his, his fatherhood of the aircraft carrier. But that, that's just Felix. That's, a, that's my next project. Yeah, that's a big one. Now, yeah. are there any members of his family still alive? Oh, another good question. Um, yeah, uh, when when I began to do my research, I, I forget how this happened, but I was able to get in touch uh, with uh, with a, with with a, one member of his family who was a granddaughter. Uh, she and her husband lived in Maine, and uh, I talked to her over the phone, and she said, "I've got all the files from my uh, my aunt who was who was working on the book when she passed away." She, and she said, I've also got a lot of the social history stuff of the family. She said, I could, you know, I, and, 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 and I immediately saw, you know, boy, uh, you know, if naval history is interesting and aircraft carriers are interesting, but if this book could also tell the personal part of Kenneth Whiting and his family and all that, it sure. would be even more interesting. Uh, and, so, and so she invited my wife and I to come up and spend a week in her garage apartment in, in, uh, in, uh, Booth Bay, Maine, and uh, we went, we went, and uh, she opened up her files to me as as they did at Whiting Field, too, uh, during my research, but anyway, I got all the personal history from that, and that is all in the book, 
uh, and, and it, you know, not only personal, not only family history, this is Kenneth Whiting's mother and father, but also his personality. The neat guy. Everybody wanted to work for him because he was creative, fun. He was understanding and supportive of the people who worked for him. Uh, he was so supportive that after the Norfolk Air Race, the reason he was disciplined was he took the whole responsibility. The, the rear admiral wanted to punish all the pilots. And Kenneth Whiting said, no, he said, I'm their commander. He said, punish me. Wow. So he took the whole rap for, for, the, for the whole group. By the way, most of those other pilots that flew in that air show, they made Admiral. Mm. Oh, this would yeah. be such a good, you yeah. should send this directly to Tom Cruise. You know, you know, somebody else said that to me the other day too that they they thought they thought that the boy what a what a what a movie this would make a biopic what a great movie yeah 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 a biopic and, and tom cruise would be the one to make it yeah it? and then maybe you could get congress to take action right right by the way the reason i selected page publishing i got publishing offers from three other other uh, publishers wow but they all wanted it they all wanted editorial control and I was not willing to give up editorial control. By that time, this book had become my baby, and I was not willing to give up any control over it. Um, and and so I took I took the page publishing contract, which but I, I did it and maintained the self control. One thing that that Page is doing for me as far as the contract is they're doing some national and international marketing for me. Then I call Whiting Field. And one or two of the people who I had worked with six years ago on my research were still there. The public affairs officer at Whiting Field, and she said, "We got to get you out here." She said, "We got to get you out here to present your book." And I said, "Absolutely." I said, "I'm there." So I'm going out the beginning of December for a couple of days to to uh, to present my book at, at Whiting Field. That's great. And I'm uh, I'm I'm pumped about that. I really am. You should be. Yeah, they were help. They were so helpful to me when I started, you know. And uh, I'm I'm so glad that they've now they've now got a biography of their namesake that they can hold up, pass out, you know, all that. Good job. Good for you. Congratulations. You did a really good thing. Thank you. Yeah, I know. It's it's, it's among the epitomes of my life. I, <laughs> I, some of the stuff I did in college is I, I would certainly put with this, but uh, it, it is a career capper. It's, it's kind of fun for me. I've been retired 10 years and uh, uh, the Lord has blessed me with a with with the body and the mind to to keep working, and uh, that's what I'm doing. Oh man, it was really nice talking to you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. You got it. You have a great day. You too. Take good care. Ivan Stroot, optometrist and inspired writer of the book The Whale Call: Bagel and Cream Cheese. So you needed a little push to get this done. I guess I think it's just because the fact that I had been talking about it for pretty much many years of my kid's life and um, my son is involved in social media and he said you know dad why don't you go ahead and finally do this and uh, you know my my wife and my daughter said yeah you know you, why don't you actually put it the pen to paper and everything and actually do it you've been talking about doing this for years what have you been talking about uh, that I wanted to do a book and what I was going to call it and then what would be involved in it and stuff. So it was basically because I, I always call my, my son and my daughter bagel and cream cheese because they go together so well, like, you know, like hamburger and French fries and, you know, things like that. So and peanut butter and jelly. So I call them bagel and cream cheese. And uh, it was that was going to be the title of the book. But 
I wanted it to be a series where I talked about, you know, their interaction with the four dogs that we had at the time and, you know, kind of giving voices to the dogs and lessons learned and things that happened. And so that's what the the first book is an introduction of when the, there's two dogs in the family and the third one is introduced into the family to become, you know, part of the family and what happens that day. So the two dogs, um, their names are Thor and Sheba had been together about three years, you know, get along great, play together, do everything together. And then uh, I, I was asked by a friend, of course, this isn't part of the story itself, but a friend of mine asked if we could take care of this dog she couldn't take care of because she had a different job. And said so we said, sure, we'll be happy to take care of the dog. And so we brought it to the house and the dog was really excited about it. And the other dog was not very excited about it and got actually quite jealous. And uh, the dog made this very funny like we call it a whale call because it was just the sound she made i've never heard her make up until that point and never since it was like oh, and we're like what the hell and we all started busting out laughing and so that was the thing she was so jealous seeing that the other dog was playing with this new dog and had kind of ignored her for several hours when the dog got to the house and so that's why I named the the book the whale call. It was going to be the the first the first of several stories about the dogs and the adventures. So it was a kind of a learning lesson because at the end of it, the the main dog Thor he came back to his sister and was like, you know, I still I love you, but yeah, I was excited. I'm sorry I ignored you, but you know, I'll never I'll never you know stop loving you. You're always going to be my my love. So. Were they all the same breed of dog? No, no, no. The, there's a white German Shepherd. There's a, a black Lab. The one that was introduced into the family at that time was a, called a Catahoula or a Catahoula Leopard Dog. I don't know if you're familiar with the breed. They were bred in Louisiana. Okay. And then uh, later on, my, my second story is supposed to be where the fourth dog was introduced into the family, and he's a Lhasa Apso. Oh, geez. A little small, small dog. So the first one was just the first ones to have three. And then the second book was supposed to be to introduce the fourth one. And then, you know, the adventures begin after that, I guess, is the whole the whole point or the whole idea. What what roles do your kids play in these books? Uh, well, when when my ex-wife and I divorced, the, the kids, you know, got to have the dogs. Basically, we agreed that the dogs would go wherever the kids go. So whenever she had them, the dogs went with them over to her and then vice versa when they went over to me. So the kids interacted with the dogs a lot. And I think during that time, it was a lot easier for them to handle the divorce because they had the dogs, you know, kind of always to love on and to love them. So it was just easier for them. They played themselves. They were part of this first book where, you know, one, one makes a, comment no she's got such beautiful eyes and the dog says so i'm not that beautiful and then so one of the kids says to the dog hey you're beautiful too so you know don't be upset (laughs) is there kind of a lesson in each book yeah that's kind of the point yeah i was trying to to do and the the first one is you know don't uh take things that you have for granted you know the fact that you you know you might get introduced to something new and it seems really great at the time but don't forget those that have always been there all along for you and that still love you and care for you. So 
Now your kids are grown up oh, now. Yeah. Are they helping you promote your books? Uh, I'm hoping that my son will get more involved in it because he's he's on social media. He's got, I don't know how many, 12 million followers or something like that. So he's, he's only very mildly got involved and I, I don't know exactly. Um, you know, I think because he has a different genre of people that are his followers. So it, I don't know, something to do with the AI and, and how, you know, if you post something in a different genre, it pulls away from yours and, and so on and so forth. So I think we're trying to figure out a way where we can make it work. Are your patients familiar with your writing? No, not really. I don't, uh, because I, I don't know, I guess I don't, I feel like I don't want to be pimping myself, uh, my book uh, to people and, you know, because I don't want them to feel uncomfortable that I'm suggesting that they have to read it or anything, you know. But um, sometimes kids come in and sometimes I might mention it and they'll say, oh, well, where, where would I find it? You know, and so I tell them, of course, you know, that there's different areas they can find it. As an optometrist, you know, the company I worked for before the one I'm at now, I was at, uh, you know, four different locations driving all over the place. So nowhere close to home. So, you know, there wasn't a community basically that would be familiar with the book. And so when I created the book and it, it was finalized, I was working in my neighborhood. And now that I'm always working in that neighborhood, it's going to be easier probably to, you know, get people that know me that will know the book and so on. So. All right. So how many books do you think you'll end up with? It's, it depends. I guess in my mind, it's like kind of depends on how successful the first one is, you know, because you have to, you know, invest a lot of your own money into it to get it to to get published and get going and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, depending on how well the first one goes, then I'll, you know, go from there. I mean, I'm, I was hoping it would be a series of maybe, I don't know, I was, in my mind, I'm thinking maybe eight or 10 books, something like that. Ah, that's ambitious. Yeah. I mean, and then each take a little bit of time, of course. And then I, I hired a family friend's daughter that's uh, very talented, you know, artistically, and she did you know, all of the illustrations for me too. So, and of course you have, I have to pay her as well. So, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the first book turned out nicely. It turned out well. So now it's a matter of getting, getting the word out and, and getting more people to, to see it's out there and be interested in, in I guess what it has to say. And, but uh, you know, Christmas is around the corner. So I'm going to start trying to do more posting on my web pages and so on. Well, there you go. So that's a good plan. Christmas is good. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I'm really glad I was able to track you down and I, I hope you have a great day. All right. I appreciate it. Alex. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs> Mary Heath has a message for anyone battling mental illness, stress, anxiety, and depression in her book, If You Think You Are Losing Your Mind. So this book was the result of a conversation you had right before COVID. My brother and I started talking about mental illness and how it's affected our family and I was like telling him, well, I can't talk because I've pretty much felt like I've been depressed all my life. And so when the pandemic helped, I started writing the book. And sure enough, we come out of the pandemic and, mil and mental illness is tenfold. The title of your book is If You Think You Are Losing Your Mind. And it sounds to me yeah. like what you're saying is if you think you're losing your mind, you probably are. <laughs> you well... If you think you are losing your mind, if you take the time to read the book, what I'm telling people is don't be ashamed to say you need help. Reach out to people. I say in the book, 
if you think you're losing your mind, call me. Meaning that for you, Alice, if there's somebody in your family that is suffering from depression, anxiety, they have that gun and they're thinking about killing somebody, say to them, family member, you can talk to me, put that gun down. And so that's the premise of it. 90% of the people, 90% of the gun violence that we have in this country suffer from some form of mental illness. So since we're not going to get the guns off the street, what's our next option? Helping people in our lives that are mentally ill. Since I was a little girl, you see, I'm 60 years old now. I'm black and I've always been overweight. And I talk about in the book when I was a kid in school, you know how people like to kick on, how they like to pick on the fat kid? Yeah. I was the fat kid. Yeah. And I'm, I, honestly, I've never thought I was pretty. And it, it led to me isolating myself from the rest of the world. I mean, and I would literally sit in my room and watch TV all day because the other kids would make fun of me. So I just didn't like being around them. Well, that led to other problems, high school, college, where I'm just not a person that is good at socializing. And then when I started to work, I found out that I would isolate myself from people. I would snap at people. I would yell at people. And it was all a part of the depression that I've already had. And so I talk about it and I say to people, people with mental illness don't want to be called crazy and they don't want to be that person that people are talked about. So we don't ask for help. So we have to give people permission to talk to me. You don't, you don't have to feel alone. As a matter of fact, Alice, you could say to me, Mary, did you know that one time in my life I suffered from depression? And you see, what happens is people you thought have it together, they don't. I saw Elon Musk on TV today, and he was like, yeah, I've pretty much had a form of mental illness all my life. And I was like, wow. I think a lot of people do. Absolutely. We got to give people permission to talk about it. Yeah. So that's what my book is about. If you think you're losing your mind, call me. <laughs> you can talk to me. Did you get help? That's the interesting thing. I'm glad you asked me that. Uh, I talk about this in the book. Right now, if you want to see a psychiatrist, there is a six-month to a one-year waiting list. I tell people that you have to basically be your family member's psychiatrist. And I know people are going to say to me, what, what I want to do is do speaking engagements. Well, Mary, how am I going to be my family member's psychiatrist? Change the things I think about. When I sit alone in my room watching TV, what do even the good guys do? They kill the bad guy. Well, you know, that's a good idea. If I don't like my supervisor and my supervisor is doing bad things, why don't I take a gun and go to work and just shoot people? Because, I mean, if you watch TV, even the good guys kill people. <laughs> so what, what I did was I read positive things, turned off the TV, and began to change what I thought about. When I started writing a book, my mind became focused on how I could help people. Sure, I still have depression, but I'm channeling that energy in a positive direction now. So when I say, Alice, how can you be the psychiatrist for the family members you have that are suffering from mental illness? Talk to me. 
whenever we talk, we're going to talk about something positive. And trust me, when you talk about someone, when you talk to someone that's mentally ill, did you know that Aunt Grace did this? Did you know that Uncle Harry did? Well, yeah, I'm sure they did. But let's talk about you. What are you up to these days? You doing anything positive? Oh, that's great. What you want to do is help me channel my energy into something positive, into positive thoughts. And that's what my book focuses on is how you can be that psychiatrist for your family members. So you managed to do this all by yourself? With the help of family members that I could call, turning off the TV and reading positive things, yes. Yes. Now... I, I know you're probably thinking, does that work for everybody? Probably not. But if we can begin to do this, we can begin to help mentally ill people put down their guns. Let's just start one person at a time. It may take years, but that's fine. We're heading at, in a country. We're heading in the right direction. I saw Sarah Palin on TV. It's been a few months ago. But she said this country is heading towards civil war. And I thought to myself, does she understand that she just put the gun in somebody's hand? I, I mean, uh, somewhere, somebody who's a Republican, oh, let's shoot all the Democrats. And someone who's a Democrat, let's shoot all the Republicans because they're suffering from mental illness. Now, she probably never meant that. But when you say words like that, your thoughts turn negative. So we as a society have to watch the words that we use because we never know when someone around us has a, a arsenal of guns at, at home and they're ready to go shoot up the school. You know what I mean? You have to watch what you talk about. Well, I mean, you know, people say that all the time about, you know, uh, there are some politicians that are talked about ad nauseum and mm -hmm. supported when maybe they shouldn't be. And I don't want to get into politics. That's not my job mm -hmm. here. But it is dangerous because you find out that the talk show host doesn't even believe the things that he or she is saying. Absolutely. They're just saying them because those words are what their listeners want to hear or their viewers want to see. And so they say them and then they get higher ratings. But they don't even believe the words that are coming out of their mouths, and they take no responsibility for the consequences. But how many of those listeners are mentally ill? Right. And how are those words being interpreted, and how do those words reinforce the negativity Absolutely. that seems to be everywhere? That is what my book is about. Yeah. I am hoping to find a sponsor that will allow me to quit my job. I'll go speak to any group anywhere, anytime any school, any, anywhere. So I'm going to start in Georgia and then go from there. All right. I'm so excited about, about my book. I, I really am because my goal is to save lives. So if I can save one life, my living is not in vain. Thank you so much. You have a great day. You too. Take care. Working for petrochemical companies and on projects involving nuclear plants, extracting methane gas from a landfill, and welding tanks for space, Gerald W. May's civil engineering career took him beyond his wildest dreams as a young boy growing up on a farm. Now he shares his experiences in his book, Engineering the Way I See It. I wanted to get my memories and stuff down on paper. I didn't want to have them that I would forget something or that it was on a piece of paper in a 
folder somewhere in some box up in the top of some shelf in the closet, but I didn't remember which one or where. I wanted to get it all together while I still had memories of it because the book that I wrote, other than some of the things in the appendices, uh, every bit of it was from my memory. I didn't do any research or anything. I simply wrote down what my memories were. What are the highlights in your book? I guess I worked on a lot of different uh, projects. I worked for several different companies, some of the same folks. The company kept selling and merging and buying and changing names. So I kind of worked for the same people most of my career, but I had stuff that I did. For instance, I worked on a uh, design of a structure to support a welding process that welded up tanks that were used to go into space on uh, like SpaceX. That must have been really interesting. That was. It was very interesting. They had some very strict requirements that took a little bit of extra doing that I was not usually used to, but I was able to accomplish. Uh, I've worked on some um, uh, nuclear projects, uh, supporting uh, a nuclear uh, installation, and uh, two of them in particular. Uh, one of them was a, um, a plant over in, uh, I think, Georgia, and one maybe in South Carolina that were actually coming uh, online with nuclear uh, plants for power. And I worked on another project that was uh, trying to convert weapons-grade material to convert it to uh, power plant-grade material. It had to be changed. And so that was a part of the U.S. START uh, treaty, more or less, with Russia. Worked on one project one time that was uh, being built in New York, and it was a facility for extracting methane gas out of the landfill. And we worked on the the structures and the foundations and the facilities for doing that for another company. And I was out of it with a design, but construction was still going on when they shut the job down and opened up the landfill again. And they were putting the refuge from 9-11 there when it hit in New York. And then later on, it started up and was completed. Most of my work has been for petrochemical companies the ones that produce things that everybody uses, but they don't realize that uh, a chemical company made it. They, you know, sometimes think chemical companies are bad, but uh, you look around, everything you've got with uh, probably was influenced in some way with a chemical company. Like what? Well, for instance, uh, after I had retired, I went back to uh, work part-time for a company that was producing uh, a type of plastics that uh, everybody uses in their uh, garbage bags, that type of plastic, and, uh, you know, different things made out of uh, PVC-type plastics that you use. Uh, every day, the women, all of their cosmetics, a lot of them come from the chemical industry. The uh, things that we enjoy, like air conditioning, most of it has a chemical um, coolant in the systems to be able to uh, to draw the moisture out, cool down, and then cool the air. So, you know, that influences a lot of people. The, the vehicles that we drive, the uh, appliances that we have in our house, a lot of those are influenced by different things from the 
chemical industry. So there's just a lot of stuff that is involved with everyday um, people that they may not realize where it came from. Isn't uh, Vaseline petroleum-based? It is. It is. They actually take crude oil and they go into a refinery, which refines that. And from the crude oil, they can put them in distillation columns and they can extract things like uh, gasoline, jet fuel, fuel, uh, diesel fuel, other types of, uh, you know, lubricants and additives. It's all comes from the either natural gas or the crude oil. So a lot of that's extracted from the, from the uh, petroleum industry. So what's really the main reason you wrote this book? Was it just for your family or young engineers? I wrote it mainly for myself, but also for engineers, the people that I worked with that might find it interesting, the people that were uh, engineers themselves, maybe in a different uh, uh, classification or area that would be interested in what a different type of engineer would do. But just to give my perspective on what I thought of the engineering career and to give other people a chance to read it and say, yeah, I I understand that, or I did that too, or I didn't know they did that, you know. So just to enlighten people and be something to be interesting to read by others. I would think you'd be great, you know, intro to engineering to have you come and talk (laughs) about what you did, you know, at a college course. Yeah, and I'd even thought about that. I even thought about that, trying to get in, and I'm sure it would be interesting for me and for the people because uh, I've always been a an easy talker. In fact, some people say they couldn't get me to shut up. When, ah, are you near any colleges? Uh, yes, I'm uh, near LSU, Louisiana State University, yes. I'm sure they have an engineering program. They They do. I'm trying to remember... I think at one point I actually went over to one of the classes at LSU and told them about a particular project that we were working on they were interested in. And I went over and gave a uh, maybe a one-hour class or not really a lecture, but a, a presentation on a particular project that we were doing. It had to do with the uh, closing uh, down some of the waterways going into New Orleans. They were going in and putting levees and gates that were would allow the boat traffic to come in and out, but to keep the floodwaters out when they had a high water. And this was because of the effect of uh, Hurricane Katrina. How about that? Yeah. And I had actually worked on part of the uh, design of the uh, gate that went in. The easiest way to explain it If you took a large piece of pie that was about 50 feet thick and pie-shaped, curved on the outside edge like the edge of a pie, and you put two of those next to each other and you closed them together so that the rounded portions finally came in and met, that's the type of design that they had for a gate to hold out the flood water. Wow. And I did some of the, the work on that originally. So I went and gave a, a talk to uh, one of the classes at LSU. Well, call them back and tell them you want to come back and talk about your book. <laughs> I might do that. I'd never thought about <laughs> All that. All right. What a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. My son's a civil engineering. He was a civil engineering major at the University of Delaware. Oh, 
Oh, okay. That's very interesting. But he minored in construction management. Oh, that's good. He started his own business, and we live on the Jersey Shore. Right. And there's all these old houses. And instead of tearing them down, people want to restore them. Right. Or they want to add on to them, and that's what he does. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, it's great. It's it's great. But he never got to work on the kinds of projects you work on. Took me a long time to work on all those. I didn't start off working, you know, all those things at once. You know, at one time when when I started out, it was like uh I was limited. I could only do certain things and then the people that had been doing these other jobs, they either left or moved or got transferred and all of a sudden it came my turn. And when I got involved with some of it, uh, I used to tell people that one of the things the company that I worked for used to do, I would go in in the morning, and if they had a problem somewhere, I would go in and they would say, go get you a plane ticket or go rent a car and go to such and such location. They have a problem there. And when you get there, find out what the problem is and then fix it. When you get it fixed, then you come home and that's all the instruction I got. <laughs> and oh I, man, I had some pretty interesting um, uh, things like that to solve. Some of them turned out really good. Some of them took a little while to work out, but uh, I learned from every one of those. So uh, your son will have an opportunity to learn and do different things. And that's a, a good field with the construction management and the other. I got into construction management, but I didn't have any formal training. I got all mine uh, on the, uh, as they say, uh, in the field, on on the site. Yeah. But uh, uh, Well, he start, my dad was a builder, my brother was a builder, and he was working on houses when he was 14 years old. So well, he had plenty of construction experience behind him. But well, anyway, what a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Gerald. I certainly appreciate the call. Bye-bye. If you don't know who Sachel is, you're about to find out. Carol Sachel pays tribute to her husband and gives him truly a gift of love by publishing his remarkable life story of hope, determination, and survival, thanks to his extraordinary artistic talent. The name of the book, Journey to the End of the Century. It, it's a homage to this beautiful man, the greatest man I ever knew. And uh, all I did was type up what he translated to me. He wrote the book in Russian, and then he translated it to me in English, and I put it on the computer. And, And it saved my life after he passed because I was in a grand canyon of grief. I can only imagine. How long were you married? 34 years. Ah. Every day bliss. Every day exquisite. Can you imagine a man who didn't once in 34 years raise his voice at me? Never once in 34 years getting mad at me for anything. <laughs> no, I can't. I know you can't because you're very quiet. <laughs> and what stimulated it, I had been asking him for 20 years to write his story because it's so inspiring the way that he addressed adversity 
uh, he, he, well, first of all, he wasn't afraid of death because in his childhood, he faced it many, many, many times. I mean, this was a, a full-grown man at 15 years of age. Not well, like our teenagers. Yeah. So <laughs> take me through the story if you can. I'd love to. He was born in the Soviet Union. His name at that time was Alexander Pavlovich Lutikov. He was the only child of a single mother and born in a time of desperation. In 1924, he was born in Kiev. Millions were starving. I think it's six million starved. Can you imagine that? No, I really can't. And all Alexanders, by the way, in the Soviet Union become Sasha. Uh, Sasha, at two years old, was starving. Even younger than that, his mother didn't have enough milk because, as he said, they were the poorest of the poor. They were homeless and her baby slept underneath a staircase, and he was lonely, and there was nothing to eat. She had to go every morning to try to find work in public buildings where she would scrub floors, and she wouldn't be home with this little baby until late, and nothing to eat all day. Mm. Suffered so much, but he never said he suffered. His words were, I had a hard time, but I never suffered. Kind people would give him a morsel of bread, and for a little while, he was quiet. Uh, finally, when he was eight, he was so emaciated, a doctor told his mother that he would starve to death unless she did something. And so she moved to Moscow with this little boy. The trip from Kiev to Moscow took two weeks on a train. Oh. But once she got to Moscow, things got better. She got jobs. Uh, she was able to bring home uh, a, a morsel of bread. They, uh, when he was about eight or nine, they picked carrots all day long because they were told for every 10 sacks of carrots, big sacks, you know, the 25 pounds, she would get one sack for herself. And so she and her son picked 40 sacks of carrots in order to have two sacks. And those two sacks of carrots lasted them the entire winter. Amazing. Uh, when he was 15... World War II was raging, and he was sent into the army, and he, he didn't have a gun. He was sent to the front, and they told him, wait till your comrade dies, and then you take his gun. He was taken prisoner by the Germans, and at 15 years old, as he was walking into the German prison camp, he was planning his escape. This is a man who escaped from three incarcerations, two jails, wow. uh, and one German prison camp. He never used a weapon, and he never saw the guards as evil or the 
warden as evil, even though there were atrocities going on in the German prison camp. He always saw them as people doing their jobs. In the prison camp, he would sing and hum songs. And uh, the German guards asked him if he could copy a, a postcard that the German guard wanted to keep as an artwork. And Sasha did it so brilliantly. Then they asked him if he could do portraits. And he said, oh, yeah, no problem. So he started doing portraits. You can see some of his portraits now at sashal.com. Uh, he's really a master of portraiture. So that's what saved his life then. That saved his life because the German guards gave him morsels of bread, extra morsels of bread in the German prison wow. camp for every portrait he did. The warden was so impressed when the guards told him that he brought to Sasha a slab of marble. And Sasha, because he, when he was 13, 14, 15, he was in the sculpture labs of the university in Moscow. And so he was highly trained. And so he made a bas-relief for the warden of his portrait. Uh, he was highly respected by the warden and the guards because he was so talented and gifted in art. The book includes all of these experiences very well described by Sasha, how he handled life and how he, is, how he walked 400 miles through occupied France when he escaped from the German prison camp to find freedom. Hmm. How did you meet him? Oh, this is a marvelous story. I'm writing it in my autobiography, but I met Sasha because I speak French and Spanish. Uh, Sasha spoke five languages, French, Spanish, Ukrainian, Russian, and English. Wow. Uh, and a uh, very colorful uh, speaker of a tremendous sense of humor. I never saw him not choose humor for every adversity. So I was going to the Francofield parties in San Francisco, and there was Sasha. Around what time was this? This was about uh, 1985. Okay. He was a very sought-after bachelor. He lived 16 years in Spain uh, during his lifetime, and he was he was not lonely in Spain. I'm sure. <laughs> he had a very colorful life, and uh, he painted, uh, oh, there are probably 300 of his paintings floating around Europe. He sold them. That's what he did every day of his life was paint. He sold to uh, John Brown, Edward G. Robinson. Vincent Price went to Spain and heard about Sasha and went to buy uh, paintings from him for his television show. Yeah. He bought 12 paintings, and he said to Sasha, I'm going to come every year, and, and I want you to have 12 paintings for me. 
And Sasha said to him, no, I am not a factory. <laughs> that, that little story tells what an amazing man. Why was Sasha so great? It was because he knew himself so beautifully. Right. He had spent a year in an ashram in Paris where he lived for eight years. And he had really grasped that the greatest response in life is the authentic response of knowing who you are. That's so true. So where where do you live? Where did you guys end up settling? When we met, we were in San Francisco. Okay. And we lived there for about 20 years. Oh. Uh, we also had a condo in Spain where we would go three, four months of every year. I was so lucky to be with a man like that. And uh, thank God the world will get to know him. But take a look at the website, sashal.com. You say Sashal when referring to his well, artwork? Well, because it became, you see, his last name was Lutikov. And he signed all of his paintings, Sasha L., and then he came to me and he said, I don't want the checks not to match my paintings. It says oh. Sashal. I'm going to change my name. And we went to Superior Court in San Francisco and changed his name to Sashal. We were both Lutikov, you know, because I married him. And, and our love story is an amazing love story. It's just so beautiful. I'm writing it now. That's awesome. So I'm assuming people in the art world know who he is. Well, in Europe, he's uh, highly known. If you look on the website, he's had shows in Paris, London, New York. Uh, his last show was at the museum in uh, Petaluma. Uh, California, where we lived for, oh, about 10 years we lived there. Okay. And uh, we had an amazing life all over the world. We traveled. I don't know how he had time to produce the body of, of work that he did. We traveled everywhere, <laughs> South America, uh, Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand. Every year we went to Spain and to France. Because he, uh, he, he has uh, seven bullets and 14 bullet holes. He's dying on the street of, of uh, San Berno in Burgundy. And who saves him but a count and a countess save his life? This was during the French Resistance. Oh, my gosh. And he lived with them in their castle in Burgundy for the next three years. And remain friends with this count and countess his whole life. His life is, it's a movie. Yeah, it is a it's movie. It's so brilliant. And then when when will your love story be out? Well, I'm kind of shy about my love story. I told you because you're fun. Oh, but uh, <laughs> it sounds like you have a great love story to share. You better get on that, lady. I'm telling you right now. Oh, it's finished. It's got uh, photos and yeah, I've finished it. It's terrific. Great. Well, are you going to publish that through Fulton as well? Well, I, I've had a very satisfying experience with them. They've done a good job. Great. That is so great to hear.
Well, thank you so much, Carol. Thank you. I, I loved this interview. You're terrific. You ask all the right questions. So are you. You have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. We hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.